Hard to Believe is proud to be a part of the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more of this and other great shows, head to cageclub.me. If you want to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at john at cageclub.me, or you can find me on Twitter at probablyrealjb. That's P-R-O-B-A-B-L-Y-R-E-A-L-J-B. The show is written, produced, and edited by me. Since I outed myself last year as an Oxfordian, which, in case you missed it, is a person who thinks the bulk of the Shakespearean canon was probably authored by Edward de Vere, 17th Earl of Oxford, I've been in communication with a number of other Oxfordians, and while I'd love to have them all on the show, I never wanted to limit the scope of what I do here. And Stephen Sable's show, Don't Quill the Messenger, remains a great resource for anyone interested in the authorship question, as well as a wonderful venue for Oxfordians to share their various perspectives. But today's guest, Robert Boog, has looked into an element of the Oxfordian story that I couldn't help but take the opportunity to explore further. A few years ago, for reasons that will become clearer in today's episode, Boog took an interest in the way the characters in Shakespeare's work appear to suffer from a number of what today we would call mental health conditions, including an especially bipolar disorder. And when he reevaluated the biography of De Vere with this lens, he came to realize that much of his notoriously erratic behavior, as well as his inspired genius, could well be connected to an undiagnosed mental health condition undiagnosed because we didn't have the language for such things several hundred years ago. I've long been interested in the supposed link between what we used to call insanity and genius, as depicted in countless movies and novels in the contemporary canon. And so a few months ago, I invited Robert to talk to me about his book on the subject, Shaky's Madness, and why he thinks we can further our understanding of Shakespeare and his plays if we apply a more modern scientific perspective to his character's various struggles. I'm John Brooks, and this is Hard to Believe. Um, Well, Robert, welcome to the show, and um, so I want to preface this a little bit because um i just want to say that i so you and i have both been on stephen sable's show um we're both oxfordians um and since i did that show and since i had stephen on my show i've had a number of oxfordians reach out to me and um uh want to talk and i'm always i always want to talk to oxfordians it's great um i don't want to you know, I never want to overwhelm my own <laughs> my own show with Oxfordianism, which I could I could definitely do. But I think Stephen does a, um, a great job on that, and uh, I think he's all the show that we need on that front. Um, but when you reached out to me, I, I I I found it your your work on this subject unique and interesting, and I think the angle that you take here is one that. Um, also sort of encompasses some other sort of bigger questions um, about the relationship between genius and, and mental health and creativity and, and all this sort of thing. Um, so I'm going to probe you a little bit on some of your your own background on sort of all these subjects. And, and I'll, I'll just start with this. Um, we all have, as Oxfordians, we have, we have origin stories. Uh, what, what brought you into, what was your entryway into the... Um, Oxfordian fold and what sort of what sort of sold you on 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 that narrative um I attended UCLA and um was uh, graduated with um an English degree 
And um, I never questioned about Shakespeare when I was in school. The um, Let's see, when I was 19, I went to England and I visited Stratford-upon-Avon. And I remember feeling so disappointed. I thought <laughs> this, in my mind, it would be like somebody coming to California and wanting to see Disneyland and being taken to, you know, like uh, a place, a miniature golf place in the valley or something you know like just the, i yeah. i thought it was to, it was going to be totally different and um i've worked in real estate for a long time over 30 years and um there's a saying in real estate all all buyers are liars and sellers never tell the truth and agents cannot be trusted you know something like that <laughs> so um i do have kind of like a, a radar when something isn't right and um in 2019 and at christmas my wife is from guatemala and our christmas uh, custom is to open presents at midnight and then the following day christmas day we take a nap like maybe have a glass of champagne and sleep that afternoon and um yeah so she put on this movie it was called nothing is truer than truth Mm -hmm. um thinking that we would just both, you know, crash because we'd been up all night and uh, I couldn't take my eyes off of it. And um, that movie depicts like taking a boat ride in Italy and visiting the places that Edward de Vere uh, visited and something clicked in my head. And um, the following month was my son's birthday and we went out to sushi and I couldn't stop talking about that movie. And <laughs> I didn't realize on the way back my, how my, my wife being Hispanic did not agree with me. And I, I didn't understand it. She said she thought that the movie made her, um, no, she didn't agree with it. She said, you know, why couldn't someone of a different color, like someone, you know, Hispanic, be the author of Shakespeare. Mm. And so that's kind of like how my journey started, like trying to convince my wife that I was right. <laughs> I think that's basically it. And she is a tough cookie, believe me. She's uh, you know, uh, not easy. So, Yeah, I think, I mean, trying to convince family members can often be one of the um, most useful tools of an Oxfordian because, you know, it, they, they can't accuse us of being um, conspiracy theorists uh, quite as easily as outsiders can. And so you kind of, you have to sort of like, um, you know, hone your skill uh, at Oxfordianism against them. And, and it's, it's a pretty safe foil <laughs> uh, against which to, to argue. So I think you and I have um, some sim- similar experiences there. Um, my wife did not argue with me anywhere near as much. She sort of was like, "Oh yeah, that makes sense." Uh, pretty pretty early on, so um, I'm, well, that's I'm, good. I'm lucky. In that. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> so you know, and a lot of books, great books, and I'm sure you've read them, um, have been have been written on um, the Oxfordian argument. But um, let's talk about the other side of your thesis here, which is that you explore. Um, the hints of mental illness in De Vere and in the plays themselves. And I want to talk about both of those two things separately. But I, I wonder if there's anything in your own experience um, that, that sort of 
turned you on to that particular aspect of De Beers' character, um, as opposed to any number of other things about him that would you know make for 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 good books? Um, is there something specific about your own um, background and story or whatever else that that sort of made you say like, oh, there's this interesting sort of hint of uh, bipolar disorder or something going on with De Beer? I kind of um, encountered like the, a perfect storm. So, you know, how the state of California was shut down like blockbuster video in the during the pandemic. And mm-hmm. <clears throat> at that time, I was watching TV in the mornings, something I never do. Um, and they kept on flashing this commercial of Latuda. So there was always this girl touting Latuda. So I took my iPhone and I was wondering like, how much does Latuda cost? Because it, it, you know, this commercial is on every like 15 minutes. And uh, <laughs> so I, I checked on my website or on the Latuda website and it said that it cost $1,500 for a 30 day supply. And it's a bipolar and it treats bipolar symptoms. So I was um, later that same day, doom scrolling on Twitter and I came across Sir Patrick Stewart who was reading a uh, Shakespeare sonnet and it was so filled with gloom and doom and despair mm. and death that I joked it sounds like old Shakey could have used some Latuda and um, then it was something like maybe three days after that I learned that uh, my nephew had gotten you know, busted in a, you know, like uh, beaten up in a parking lot by a police officer. And um, I was wondering what, you know, he's a straight A student, what, what is going on? And it turned out that he was then put under observation for bipolar disorder. So I kind of had like, like I said, it was kind of like a perfect storm or some, you know, there there are people who say that there are no such thing in life as coincidences. And when you um, put all these things together, I, I just put one and one together. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I figured that wh- why not like examine this closer and um, compare things and see, you know, if this pans out. And then I reached out to a psychiatrist after I, I think I wrote like 50 or 60 pages and I sent it to a psychiatrist or three psychiatrists thinking like maybe one will say yes or, and that's what happened. He said, um, you know, although, you know, you know, I can't stretch across, you know, time and, and medically interview someone, I'd prefer right. to have them in my office, but you do have a strong and compelling case. And you're the first person who has ever um, thought that um, Oxford may have um, endured bipolar disorder. So that kind of made me, and like it kind of gave me a, uh, an impetus to keep going. So, yeah, I, this is so. So, what sort of um, sparked my interest about your your thesis here is that you know i've i've struggled with with 
depression and anxiety myself. And um, I also had childhood epilepsy. Uh, so, and, you know, and I've, 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 I've always loved Shakespeare, um, you know, independent of my, of my time as a, as an Oxfordian. I remember, I remember thinking very clearly when I read Romeo and Juliet for the first time in ninth grade and there's the, 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 the moment with Tybalt and Mercutio and thinking to myself, boy, that escalated really quickly, you know, and, and, yeah. and, and thinking like there's something about, and, and then I started thinking like more about other sort of Shakespeare um, uh, scenes and, and, and characters. And of course we can talk about Hamlet later on. Um, but I, you know, I think you're right. I've always, I've always sort of in the back of my mind know uh, or noticed that there's something about uh, the Shakespeare canon where, there seems to be a uh, a level of sort of erratic behavior um, among some of the characters that <laughs> and, really feels unique to Shakespeare, right? Yeah, they kind of like they go from zero to a hundred. Or some of the people, right? <laughs> right. <You know? laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Very quickly. Um, yeah. I, so, okay, let's let's talk about Devere um, and where you think the most compelling evidence of Devere's mental illness can be found? Because of course we're dealing with someone who's been dead for half a millennium and um, also, you know, as, as this psychiatrist you talk about says, like it's hard to diagnose someone uh, that far out. And also we have, you know, limited um, vocabulary at the time of, of mental illness. So it's really hard to make that diagnosis. But what would you say is like a couple of the um, most compelling elements of his biography that that say no, this is, this is clearly what's going on here. Well, one of the things that I noticed was fainting, and um, I thought it was weird that in so many plays, they there were characters that would just flame, kind of faint, and I was wondered about that. And then I, um, I, I being a lazy person, <laughs> I. Uh, <laughs> I thought, well, okay, because I think I got like seven instances of fainting. And then I thought, I bet somebody's already done this. So I Googled, uh, you know, Shakespeare and fainting. And sure enough, there was a British uh, physician who in 2006 examined every line from Shakespeare's plays and found that there were um, something like 21 instances of fainting or near fainting by reason of um, um, just of being emotional. So, mm. and it was not only in his plays, but in his poetry too. So it's kind of um, odd. And so I thought, um, and another thing too, that struck me about uh, Shakespeare, what, I mean, it was kind of like um, the play Othello has this handkerchief that had been, uh, you know, I always thought that, this handkerchief was kind of like a uh, a plot hole filler. Like, why didn't Desdemona just get another handkerchief? Another right. I mean, <laughs> well, good point. You know, but she couldn't yeah. because it had been uh, dipped in this uh, stuff called um, mamia, and mamia is uh, was a cure for epilepsy, or not mm -hmm. a cure, but it was kind of used like smelling salts. It mm -hmm. smelled like tar or something like that. So when someone fainted, they would put it under their nose. And again, fainting, um, the use of mummy, how, why would 
someone know about this unless they had had not personally experienced it especially if they're writing about fainting in in poetry another thing was um in de vere's poems he writes like 16 poems uh, that are still you know acknowledged today to be his by stratfordians not oxfordians say that he wrote like 21 um, poems i think so i thought i'm, I'm just going to look at the 16 poems that edward de vere is known or can be agreed upon by everyone that he wrote and um there was something that i found about a, like a lack of sleep he complained about not being able to sleep shakespeare does this too in his sonnets he he talks about um not having sleep and so mm -hmm. when i kind of added up you know these symptoms it it seemed to me that um you know this might have been a person who you know maybe had epilepsy as a child that morphed into uh bipolar disorder and uh, one of the theories nowadays is that ep childhood epilepsy is never actually cured it more <laughs> something else sorry to tell you this but um <laughs> that's that's what they and there's also so many talk i mean so many plays also talk about madness you know if you mm -hmm. think about it you have these people that um you know othello is a good one or i mean just people who talk about not othello but um king lear um who are going mad and or or um malvolio he kind of he's well he's he's melancholy sorry that um that there's depression melancholia back in shakespeare's time just all these different if you looked at the symptoms of bipolar disorder you would kind of, you can connect the dots yourself yeah um <laughs> so yeah, that is bad news about childhood epilepsy. No, I, I'm 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 quite sure that many of my own um, mental health struggles, such as they are, I mean, I'm 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 fortunate that I I don't have severe ones. Um, I'm pretty run of the mill as far as that goes, but I'm sure they are tied um, to childhood epilepsy. When I think that's kind of why, um, again, like I, I really resonated with what you were saying here, and it really made me sort of think again more in more depth um about about some of the um some of the plays I, the one that really obviously um strikes me is is hamlet and and i you know i think most uh oxfordians agree that hamlet is if not the most autobiographical certainly one of one of the most autobiographical of of de beers works um how how does how does seeing hamlet within the framework of um of mental health disorders um help kind of illuminate that that story do you think one of the symptoms um you know on the depressive side because there are manic and depressive sides of bipolar disorder uh is you know melancholy and also um suicides and um i think you know in several of these plays when you mention romeo and juliet and hamlet um you do have a number of suicides and um it's kind of like uh, you know when to talk openly you know to be or not to be um he's talking about uh you know whether he should continue to live or not i mean really i mean if you if you get into it um and so i think to 
to me, again, I, I hate to keep beating a dead horse, but um, if you look at it like that was um, himself trying to explain him his psyche to the world. Um, and I think that's what Freud looked at it too. Freud looked at it more of like um, he was like calling out about his mother or his um, lack of feelings, you know, uh, feelings for his mother. Um, and um, I don't know, I guess I, I just look at it as like a call for, for help almost. Yeah. So, all right, let's, let's talk about Freud then. Um, if, if, uh, if you'd like. So uh, I, I've always found it interesting that Freud was um, a, a doubter um, to the, to the, to the Stratfordian um uh, theory. Do you think that Freud noticed a similar thing? Um, do you think that, f- that one of the reasons why Freud uh, doubted Stratford was because he saw the same thing that you see and that he thought, well, this can't really apply to this, this guy about whom we know basically nothing and, and seems to have had a pr- fairly mundane, um, you know, un- uninteresting existence. Uh, otherwise yeah i mean the there there are so many things about oxfordianism when you get into it that um it's it's really it's it gets interesting so i kind of want people to explore stuff on their own too because sometimes you can talk about things but it doesn't really resonate until you do the research yourself but one of the things that I found, or uh, there's a website that I found, it's called uh, Shakespeare's Words, or Shakespeare, yeah, Shakespeare's Words.org. And what that website allows you to do, you can put in any word, and they will tell you which play that comes from, or if, you know, it's in several plays, so, um, or poems. So what I did is I put the word love in... Um, Shakespeare's uh, poems just to see like how many times it was used and then I had to like physically count in Edward de Vere's 16 poems the word love and what is astonishing and this is totally not scientific at all but I got this exact same percentage of usage so in other words like 25 times Edward de Vere used the word love in his 16 poems and like Shakespeare's poems um, there was something like 252 instances um, and it came out the same it was like f- used 52 or 53.5 wh- whatever it was it was it was the same it was kind of weird mm-hmm. so I think when when we talk about um, Edward de Vere and um, his poems they kind of relate to the more mature um, Shakespeare because he kind of has a problem with love. And um, that's what Freud noticed was his love of his mother. I think that, um, well, okay. So I mentioned that I attended UCLA and um, I was given this assignment one time. I had to write um, an essay on Sonnet 116. And I, if you're unfamiliar with um, that sonnet, it was my instructor's favorite. 
that's the one that says, let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments, that one. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. she thought this was the greatest love poem of all time. Mm -hmm. And um, when <laughs> the night I had to do it um, was like three days prior, my girlfriend of seven and a half months had broken up. I'd found, well, I'd found her cheating on me. Oof. And Oof. so now I'm writing this, uh, you know, this, this paper and I, t I, you know, I totally trashed this, uh, sonnet. In fact, I rewrote it and, <laughs> um, I actually found it and I included it in my book, but, um, I, I can read my, my version of it too, if you're interested. And yeah, yeah, yeah. it goes like this, it goes, let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark whose worth's unknown, although his height be taken. Love involves trust like how I trust you, but trust is hard to gain and easy to lose. Love alters not with this brief hours and weeks, but bears it out to the edge of doom. Love means caring for someone, no matter what, for love may be blind, but never is trust. So mm -hmm. I was big on trust, and then it occurred to me, like, what is Shakespeare's thought on trust? So I went to that, you know, that website where you can check out the words, and I put in trust. And what's weird is that Shakespeare um, has a problem with trust. In his plays, he uses the word like 183 times, but because of mistaken identity, about 98% of the time, what he says is, do not trust me or anyone else for that matter. And um, what I found in this one like schizophrenia bulletin is that people who have um, bipolar disorder have a problem with trust because if you think about it, if your mood is constantly changing, um, you're not really sure of yourself. You know, you mm -hmm. can't feel like you can really trust yourself in a certain, to a certain extent, extent. And, um, but when you think about it, the man from Stratford, he didn't really have a problem with trust. In fact, he purchased like 107 acres, and he didn't even show up to the closing. His brother did. <laughs> Isn't that true? You know, he That's... and uh, the judge or the person, uh, and it says on the historical record, um, you know, look, you, I have to leave the property with, you know, the owner until, I mean, you've paid this huge amount of money, 320 pounds, but you're not going to get it until you show up and sign for it. So in other words, I think that... Um, the Stratford guy had no problem. You know, he, he paid his debts. He borrowed money with others to buy commercial real estate. He rubbed elbows with King James. Um, you know, he paid extra for mourning rings in his will or whatever. He wanted people to, you know, change his name. I think his father, John Shakespeare, had a problem. Um, you know, he kind of trashed the Shakespeare name with all these crooked wool dealings and he was running for the, from the sheriff and uh yeah, yeah the lawyer henry higford could never find him and 
Um, so I think that um, William is the guy who um, wanted to become the gentleman or he paid, you know, bribe someone or whatever to get that coat of arms. And right. um, he did the same thing when he, he bought this other property in, from Walter Getley in September of 1602 for a cottage um, on the, the Shakespeare documented website, the, you know, the Folger Shakespeare library, they say, Walter Getley performed his role, but Shakespeare was not there officially to take possession. He had also been absent in May 1602 when he purchased 107 acres from John Coombe. The court steward recorded that the premises would remain in the Lord's hand until Shakespeare came to receive it. So it's kind of like uh, William or Stratford trust people, but Edward de Vere, uh, his wife didn't trust him. The Queen of England didn't put him to any special post. Uh, his father-in-law certainly didn't trust him. I mean, they were all afraid he was just going to spend his money. And also, spending money, by the way, like um, excessive spending of money is a manic um, trait. Or a, Right, right. You know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> so, you're again, it kind of, you know, I'm just connecting dots here. And um, another one that you don't really think about all that much, but is um, it has to do with time. You know, the, the two lines that I deleted from that, uh, that, that sonnet were, um, love's not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come. And, um, you know, my instructor thought that he was talking about an everlasting love, you know, because of his talking about time. But to me, it seemed kind of creepy. I mean, it seemed like, you know, the word sickle reminded me of the figure of death, like holding a scythe. Mm -hmm. And um, to me, it seemed like he makes love more possessive, you know, like mm -hmm. on Dateline, you'll always hear the killer say, you know, <laughs> if, if I could not have her, then no one could, you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. he's yeah. kind of creepy in that, in in or possessive or yeah. you know kind of like sting when he sings every breath you take i'm watching you kind of thing you know so um edward i mean shakespeare and edward de vere i mean there are sonnets where he he talks about um time in this in a similar kind of fashion you know like um i don't know that I give examples in the in the book, but um, and I also kind of um, I kind of compare um, Shakespeare or Edward de Vere to uh, Sylvia Plath, and the reason why <laughs> Sylvia Plath, of course, passed away in like 1963, like in January, and 19 years later she won a um, like the the award um like a nobel prize for poetry or something and um this was 19 years after her death and she had not you know come out come from beyond the grave to write poet poems um these were just poems that were collected and just repackaged in a new anthology and she won the award and similarly that's kind of how I see, you know, when her first book came out, which um, 
was um, the Bell Jar. Um, right. It was published in England under Victoria Lucas. So Sylvia Plath had left, um, you know, a, like a letter to her her mother, her, you know, do not put my name on this book. You know, I, I just think it's crap. Do not do this. And um, so the United States publisher wanted Sylvia Plath's name on it, and the family refused for like 10 years. And then finally, I think her mother died or something, and then they put um, Sylvia's name on it. So it's kind of like um, there wasn't a person who jumped out of, you know, the shadows and said, my name is Victoria Lucas and that, you know, I wrote this kind of thing, which is how I feel um, in a way, uh, William Shakespeare kind of just um, kind of just took over this personality that he was paid to pretend like he was a playwright, I guess, mm-hmm. or a poet or a poet. Um, but um, yeah, so th- Sylvia Plath also viewed time kind of weird. And, and by weird, I mean this, that to a bipolar person, when you're um, on a manic high, time just goes fast when you're on a low of lows time moves so slowly it's like excruciating so it is the it it's it's kind of like a character of that of bipolar disorder that it changes a person's perception of time and how they view time so um anyway that it's kind of like a negative force on people's lives it's not um, always positive, but it, right. it can move faster, slow, depending on how, you know, the person is feeling. And, um, and this is based on, on interviews with people with BD. Mm-hmm. But if we're talking about William of, uh, Stratford, he was a planner, you know, he planned his will in advance, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He doesn't yeah. see time the same way. No, he, yeah. he's, uh, you know, going to give his wife a second best bed. You know, he's, um, right. It's very stale and emotionless, right? There's right. There's nothing, there's nothing passionate about anything that we have of his, you know, um, exactly. Actual... Yeah. So I think that that's another thing that kind of distinguishes, um, the two, the two people like if you really read the the plays and the sonnets you you kind of like get a feeling for the person and that's the feeling that i was getting i guess is what how i'm trying to explain it right and it's not the feeling of a person who would who would give his wife his second best bed and not teach his children to read and you know that sort of right. thing yeah. yeah yeah and the third one is empathy I, I kind of had to like ask myself, you know, like, how do we know someone with empathy? And I, I made my own like little list, like people with empathy are curious. They have concern for people that are being discriminated against. Maybe they kind of can step into the shoes of other people. You know what I mean? Um, but when you get to Edward de Vere, they, um, he was kind of called a monster or like a monstrous adversary. And like he, he could be like, a, you know, one of those people that you're walking on eggshells around because he was in a bad mood. And um, what's interesting is that there are scientists that have discovered this like um, extra 
empathy um, with people with bipolar two affective disorder. So they have like excessive compassion or extreme empathy and it can differ from person to person and from day to day. So it does not exclude Edward Devere or Oxford. It makes him like a likely, more likely candidate, you know, right, because right. he could be this like a dick one day and then turn around and be the most generous guy who, who, you know, spends money and buys everyone in the, in the tavern, of you know, a drink or something. Right. So, right. Um, but if we look at, um, Stratford, <laughs> he didn't even write letters to his own family, right? I mean, he's living a hundred miles away. Um, <laughs> did he reach out to anyone? Uh, you know, he was so concerned about Hamnet, his 11 year old boy's death that like less than 60 days later, he's standing in line for the coat of arms. I mean, it's crazy. He, he didn't really stick around. I mean, so, um, I, it just seems to me that this definitely is not the guy. I mean, I'm, I, I truly do believe that uh, Edward Devere was the author and that we can look into his, into his um, psyche even a little bit better by using, you know, the symptoms of uh, bipolar disorder. Yeah. That's all. So, it's so illuminating. I, I've been thinking so much about, um, well, a couple of things, really. One of them is, is again, what we do know of Devere. Um, and every time we uncover sort of more of his biography, we, we do see those kind of two ends of his character, where he is this gregarious and, and you know, just the good time friend who, who the people who love him really love. And at the same time is this guy who, like, is terrible with money and, like, constantly mopey you know and and a little prickly and tough to be around and like th those aren't contradictions uh again if you know someone who who is bipolar um it might be very familiar to you i i was in my 20s i was in a in a long-term relationship with someone who is bipolar and all of these things that you're talking about i'm like yep yeah like <laughs> checking them off right and you know very very artistic very very um passionate about about her creativity uh exceedingly generous but also could be you know really p possessive and and uh and, and emotionally abusive and it's like i i see all of this again not just in devere's uh biography but also in 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 the works of shakespeare um, I want to ask you this, because I think this is one of the things that kind of unites all of us Oxfordians, which is one of the, I, it's one of the sort of, um, commonalities that we all have is that one of the reasons that we gravitate toward this idea or sort of one of the things that maybe sort of made it fall into place is that we understand the work better. Um, that, that once you see Shakespeare as being written by Oxford, um, the, the work becomes more alive, right? It, it, it becomes more logical and, and you, can, you can see meaning that you could not possibly see if it was just this sort of lost anonymous dude named William Shakespeare of Stratford. So I, I also, I, I want to know, like in writing this book and in doing this research, um, if you can articulate any single way that, that the work itself um, has become 
better illuminated to you uh, when you see it through kind of this lens of someone who is struggling with with bipolar disorder and or possibly epilepsy um, at the same time? I guess for me, it was more of the um, the feeling that I understood how he could get into the head of women more, maybe. Like, um, you know, there are several people who believe that Shakespeare must have been written by a woman because, <laughs> yes. you know, yes. he has uh, such strong characters. And um, so I got to thinking that, I mean, if you were someone who went to Italy, if he went, this uh, Edward de Vere, we know went to Italy. He spent time there. He he, he is very, um, he's like a sponge to me. Like he just picks stuff up really quickly and just locks it in. And um, it's just that he has so many plays that involve, um, you know, mistaken identity because female characters pose as men and that kind of thing. Yeah. And the genius of it is like, you're sitting there kind of thinking, at least to me, like, here's a, you know, a, someone who's falling in love with someone who's a man who's like a woman and that kind of thing. And, um, that, that to me, it just seemed like you would have to like, um, I don't know. You just have to have been there or something. He, he had to have like, I don't know, cross-dressed or done that kind of thing, I guess. I, I don't know. To me, I look at it more like emotionally, I guess how it, how it grips me emotionally knowing that it makes sense. I mean, it's kind of like things make sense more because uh, in, in other words, if every woman in your town were the same or talked the same and stuff, and then you went to Italy and you came back and you've said, no women talk like this, then people would be going, what, how did you think of that? You know, but it was really you talking to other women. I mean, it's kind of like, I don't know. To me, a lot of that stuff, it's more emotional, I guess. Right. And, and his, his uh, mental health condition making him more kind of receptive to um, more emotional means of thinking and communication and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. And also like the, the sign when we were, when I was talking about mania for um, signs of bipolar disorder, you know, yeah. extremely high energy, grandiose levels of self-esteem, loud, rapid speech, very little need for sleep and engaging in risky behaviors. Like those are all like signs of, of mania. And on the depressive side, you know, feel feelings of lethargy, both physically and mentally, a sense of personal worthlessness, eating too much or too little and overwhelming sadness and thoughts of suicide. So it's kind of like when you here, I mean, you hear these things in the poems or the plays, but you never really, I mean, to me, it, it just seemed like people weren't totally putting it together like maybe they should. And also to me, it was I, because I had someone close to me be diagnosed with bipolar disorder, I was thinking, wow, this is a perfect opportunity for colleges or even high schools when people are learning about Shakespeare to really start talking about mental health because the author, it seems like, um, endured it. I hate to say suffered from it because people with right. bipolar disorder, I mean, that's, that's your life. I mean, you're, it's right. not like you, you can change, uh, you know I mean, 
I mean, with medication, yeah. yes, but, um, yeah. and by identifying this sooner, I mean, we have all these instances of school shootings and, you know, stuff happening in our schools. Why not try to like put a spin on this that let's get the author right and realize that, you know, this was yeah. just a part of him. It wasn't, you know, nothing against him. It's just the way he was. And there are a lot of people that um, endure the same thing. And by knowing more about it, maybe we can recognize these symptoms and help them out when, when we see this. So on that note a little bit, then uh, I'm going to kind of ask you a kind of personal interpretive question here, um, which is that I, I have noticed in the last 20 years or so that um, there's been a lot of kind of cultural reflection on this idea of the link between um, genius and mental illness um, to the point where, you know, I think that there are some um, films or, or popular beliefs that reinforce the idea that those two things are directly connected. Uh, the two that really stick out to me in sort of recent memory and recent being a relative term here, um, Darren Aronofsky's first film, Pi, which kind of explores that idea. And the one that like really sort of shines bright is A Beautiful Mind um, about John Forbes Nash, uh, which basically suggests that the source of his genius was his mental health disorder, right? And that without it, he couldn't be the genius that he really was. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I, I, having sort of like looked at Shakespeare through this lens, um, do you think, I mean, it feels to me a little irresponsible um, but maybe it's true. I, I don't really know. And I, I just kind of want to know if you've kind of given that any more thought because of, of your of your book and your and your research. The one thing that I can say that um, struck me and I, I'm just going to go back a little bit. Um, last year, there was a book that came out called North by Shakespeare. Right. Where they talk about uh, landing on my show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So yeah. Um, what got to me was I uh, was um, uh, Sir Thomas North was famous for um, translating Plutarch's lives. Right. And so I was wondering to myself, like, what is that book about? Right. I mean, I'm sure everybody did the same thing. But um, when I did, I noticed that a lot of the people mentioned in the book had epilepsy. You know, if you look at it, Julius Caesar, mm -hmm. uh, Alexander the Great. I mean, you could mm -hmm. go through most of the people that are in, uh, you know, Pythagoras in that, in that book um, had epilepsy. And epilepsy, I think, is the real one. I mean, that um, is linked to creativity. And <laughs> it could be that, you know, when you faint... You just feel, um, I think, like I said earlier, your your self-esteem or your self-worth is shaken a little bit because you're not that confident about yourself. It, your self-esteem may suffer just a little bit. And maybe you want to read more or find out what's happening more. And um, to me, I think that's the real key is that um, when you have something that happens to you, I think you want to figure it out more and you'll 
ask more questions or do more research. Maybe it has to do with you not needing as much sleep or something like that too, but maybe because you there's a, a buzz that's going around, maybe it's just um, touching a pen to paper that makes you feel better. But I think that there's probably some kind of like um, rational exp explanation um, because uh, I, I think a lot of the people that even in, in my book, um, I mention a lot of people that um, that endure um, bipolar disorder that you might not think about, like Britney Spears or Winston Churchill, Mariah Carey, you know, Mel Gibson, people like that. And that's what I think um, is is just they, you know, decided I'm, I've you know, I want to be known for something else, not this is just a part of me, uh, this disorder or this epilepsy, whatever it was. And right. I'm not going to let that hold me back. And that's what, you know, this book, I've written uh, like six or seven other books. And this is the only book I've actually had people who have emailed me to say, thank you for writing your, your book. And that is such a, I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's really touching. The first like couple times I got it, I was like, oh, man, I, I didn't realize that so many people felt so strongly, but yeah. it's kind of like, and they were kind of similar. Like my brother has bipolar disorder. My cousin has it. My aunt, I mean, what, whatever. Um, but it was like, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is if William Shakespeare had it and was able to be the world's greatest English writer, at least, um, you know, there's nothing that can stop you from achieving what you want. I mean, really? Yeah, that's a, a well said. And I, you know, I, I think that your observation that people who live on the, the fringes of stability um, tend to have a drive to do something where they find stability or find some sort of uh, identity or find empathy, right? With, or, or because of that, they, they feel empathy with other people. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's a um, reasonable assessment. And I also think that's one of the reasons why beyond just the, the, the pure artistry of, of Shakespeare and his words, that there's something deeper and more resonant and more, um, sort of eternal right when the way that it has endured um unlike other writings of its time uh through to today that that probably I, I think this lens of seeing shakespeare as being written by someone who was struggling um is a really important one right yeah and i think he was discriminated against because if yeah. you think about it if if you fainted when you were a child and let's say that you grew up in the you know 1970s or 80s or something like that um that would not be as big of a deal as in like the 1570s or something like that you know what i mean it's kind of like everybody would would have you know wanted to be like one of the um the cures for um epilepsy was uh like putting you in a dark room, but first beating you with the stick because they thought that the devil had something, you know, they had to beat the devil out of, of you first. Of so, yeah. and that in my mind is why Edward Devere, when he was a, a boy, broke all the windows at, 
in, in his college. I mean, right. they probably put him in a, in a dark room. And he said, guess what? I'm, I'm not going to, you know, let a dark room stop me. Um, so I don't know. To me, to me it seems like um, a, a lot of people need to find the real author who was discriminated against. And you can kind of feel it. Or when you watch productions that have like all black casts, it's no different than uh, all white people or all Hispanic people or whatever. It's kind of timeless because everyone has these feelings of depression and, you know, happiness and feeling discriminated. And a lot of the main characters, main characters in um shakespeare sometimes are like the maid or i mean they're not like always the the king that are the most interesting you know right right yeah good point well it's it's been really really this has been a great talk um i it's been eye-opening uh in a lot of uh, kind of unexpected ways um so so thank you for taking the time uh, before we go um this is your chance to advertise yourself as you uh see fit so please um let everybody know where they can find your book and your work and anything else that you want to uh connect people to yeah you can um you can find the book at um amazon that's probably the easiest just uh you can google my last name it's boog b like boy o-o-g like george and um i have a website just robertboog.com um, you can find me there, the stuff that I've done. Robert, thank you. It's been so much fun. And uh, uh, take care. Oh, you too, John. Thank you. Perhaps you've seen the play. He asked them all how much they loved him. The youngest didn't want to say. And you're just like her. Oh,